Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast. And if you've been listening, we've been doing, it's almost, it's three plus weeks now of asking the question of what's next. Um, we're in this shutdown. We're in a different space. Um, and we've been asking this, and I've been asking this question of friends, colleagues, leaders, uh, people that I've just enjoyed conversations with in regards to school, education, and learning. And so today I'm with David Hunt, who is the um, Director of Education for CARDIS. And people who've listened to my podcast know, uh, you know a lot about CARDIS and that I love CARDIS and that I, I, I enjoy the work that they do. Um, but that's not the point. The point is, David, I'm just going to throw it into your court and ask you this question. From where you sit and from what you're seeing, what comes after this and what's next? Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Eric. And a great, great question. Uh, the first place my head goes is uh, I think of a comment that, that our colleague, uh, Carter Senior Fellow, uh, Dean Van Pelt, made. Well, I guess it was probably, what, a week? A week after the, the shutdown, give or take? Because, uh, of course, she, she's president of EdVance, a large uh, independent school association in Ontario. And the, the question that, that, that she asked, she says, okay, well, we've, we've, we're really dealing with the how right now. How do we educate now that we have this shutdown? We got to go remote. We got to go online. Okay, we've got the how down, <laughs> but why? why? Why do we educate? What is education for? We seem to have skipped that question. And, and in the midst of the how, uh, we, 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 we've glossed over that. And and really, it's what an opportune time for us to ask that, that question of the why. And I think parents, because parents are being forced right now to, to really assist with education, doesn't matter where your kids go to school, whether it's public, private, anything in between. Right now, parents are being forced to be much more involved in that education. So the question around the why, the, what, what's the point of education? What's, what's this for? What, what's the end goal? I think that's, that's at the forefront right now. And so I, I wrote a piece uh, on um, Medium. It was just released earlier this week where, where I kind of dug into that question uh, around the conversation I had with Dini and, and really this, so many different, different opinions on, 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 on why, uh, why, why we have education and even re research we've done on that. Like one of the, uh, the series, uh, research series I've done is, is who chooses independent schools and why. And what's funny about that is, is when you ask parents, why do you send your kids to an independent school? Uh, there's, there's more answers. <laughs> for why they send their kids than there are parents sending their kids. Uh, the average parent has at least two, two quote unquote, most important reasons why they send their kids to an independent school. And so there's, there's, the reasons are all over the place. And if you go to the academic li literature, you could find a ho host of reasons, but I think when you take all of it and you, and you boil it down, I think uh, Charlotte Mason, who was, uh, as you know, an education practitioner and theorist uh, back in the late 19th and early 20th century, she boils it down to personhood. At the end of the day, what we're trying to, what what we are developing, is 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 people, and it's it's the the children who they are today, but also who they are becoming. So whether we're looking at the policy policy side, and it's it's arguments for uh, improving academic standards because we've got to improve our economy, and there's a strong correlation there, or whether it's the whole holistic focus on education, whether it's developing good citizens, that's a common theme you find in the academic literature. Whatever it is, all those. Same arguments, they all boil down to the same thing. It's who are the people that we're developing, it's personhood. And also Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff, Wolter, well, uh, excuse me, Nicholas Wolterstorff, who, who of course used to teach at Yale, 
Um, he, he made the same points. At the end of the day, these aren't just students. These aren't just children. They're people. And, and, and looking at students, at, looking at children as people, developing them as people, whole people. So, so that's, I hope, I hope that's, the, that's what we can draw out of this. I don't know if we will take that away from this. I'm not sure if that is what's next, but I hope that's where we focus. And then building on that, if I can make a second point, uh, actually, actually three, there's really th three, three PPs, if, if I can say it that way. The second one is reimagining how we define public education. I think this is an opportune time for that where we've typically looked at um, uh, public school as, as, as non-private school or non-homeschool and, and, and it's really government school, but all education is in the public interest. Uh, whether it's again, because we're developing citizens, whether it's because the tax, um, we're developing taxpayers, how, how you wanna look at it, people that contribute to our economy, bottom line is the public has a stake in the education of young people, period. And so, and so as a result, education, no matter what form it's in, it needs to contribute to the public good. That's critical. So right now, this window that we have, I, I think it's a great opportunity to reflect on that. And then that leads into the third P being policy. How do we look at policy and in the States, you guys have great examples of this in terms of education savings accounts, where, where you have policy mechanisms that allow for a flexible education, a flexible schooling experience. Because um, really, now, Online education is not for everybody. E-learning is not for everybody. We're really finding that out right now. But at the same time, I think a lot of families have been pleasantly surprised at, hey, there's, there's something to be said for, for slowing down, um, being more family-centric. And, and I think even CNN uh, had an article, I think it was on Monday, uh, about exactly that. And that's that many parents are surprised by this. So what policies can we put in place to make for a more flexible learning experience, knowing that every student is different, Every child is different. They don't all fit into to the grid we've created. Uh, one size does not fit all, et cetera, et cetera. So really, those, those three, three P's, personhood, the public good, reimagining how we view public education, and then that third would be policy and looking how do we get a pluralistic policy where choice actually is an option for all, all families, not just those who are born privileged. So let me ask, I just want a perspective question, right? I love the P's because that's great stuff. And, and it's interesting that, like if we build the policy on that idea of the personhood, you know, with this understanding of, you know, the public good, um, do you think people will be more receptive, these, these policymakers, these legislators? Because, because the past 20 years, you know, whether it be in the United States, other parts, you know, Canada, you know, even our friends in England have talked about this and, and other parts. It's been really top down and technocratic. Sure. It, do you think people will be, you know, whether it be legislators, policy, think tanks, groups, do you think they'll be more receptive to, you know, a flexible policy approach because of what we've been through? Yeah, I do. I do. Now, now there are, there are some, um, like, for, for example, particularly in libertarian circles, I, I've been seeing a lot of commentary around the fear that, you know, the states are going to expand that much more so through this. We're expanding the nanny state, all that sort of stuff. I don't, I don't know if I, I, I buy that. And, and the reason for that is, is parents have tasted what this is like. And, and we always have the, the, the fear of the unknown. And often why we don't step into to different policies is, is what does that look like? How do you make that transition? Well, sure, we haven't had much of a choice. We've been forced into this situation. So par parents and students uh, have, have tasted what it's like to have a bit more flexibility. And I think although some for sure hate it, uh, and can't wait to get back to normal. There are many who 
and, and I, I don't think we have good data on this yet, but anecdotally, um, we've seen lots and lots of, of uh, testimonials of how positive of an experience this has been. But uh, another way that I would look at it is just take my, own, my home province here where I am in British Columbia. And you've seen um, uh, government be increasingly um, favorable towards uh, alternative non-conventional schooling uh, types, whether it be independent school, distributed learning, homeschool, what, whatnot. And the reason for that is increasingly it's become a nonpartisan issue where both major political parties here, right and left, both see the value in non-government schooling. And, and I, think, I think you're seeing that elsewhere as well, where it's not just a right and left issue, um, where, where, again, if, if more and more families <laughs> see the value in this, which I think they are right now, you're going to have um, policymakers, elected officials, much more open uh, to, to embracing, if, if not change outright, at least creativity and innovation with, within the system. David, really appreciate your time, your thoughts, and your wisdom. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to have had this time together. <laughs>